Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you, and then everyone else will believe you too. And if it looks like you're the only believer around, just keep on believing, don't put yourself down, just believe. Our guest this week grew up in Portland, Oregon, earned a degree in economics from Stanford, an MBA from Stanford Graduate School, and an LLB from Harvard Law School. He's known as the turnaround kid and Mr. Fixit for American industry. He's led numerous companies through financial crisis and or bankruptcies, including Chrysler, Delphi, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Bethlehem Steel, and AIG. And since 2018, he's been the chairman of the board of Purdue Pharma. His name, Steve Miller. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on News Talk 760 WJR. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. And we're talking to Steve Miller, known as the Turnaround Kid. Steve, welcome. An honor to have you. Thank you, Jack. Glad to be here. Can you start by talking about growing up in Portland, Oregon, and your mom and your dad, please? I certainly can. Yes, I was uh, privileged to grow up in uh, Portland, Oregon. Also spent a lot of my uh, childhood down at the Oregon coast town of Bandon, Oregon, which had uh, fishing and uh, lumber industry and so on down there. My father was a lawyer in Portland, and so I uh, got an interest in uh, perhaps uh, pursuing a legal career, uh, watching his career. Uh, but after going to law school, I figured out I'd be a terrible lawyer. I went uh, after law school, went to business school, enjoyed business so much more that uh, I pursued a career, career in business instead of law. What's the biggest thing you learned from dad? And what's the biggest thing you learned from mom? <laughs> uh, from uh, mom, the value of a loving family. And from my dad, uh, the rewards for very hard work, uh, you know, dedication. He worked a lot of Saturdays and Sundays and everything else uh, and because he was serving his clients first. And that made him a highly successful lawyer. Um, Steve, God has sent you a lot of angels in your lifetime. One of them early on was your grandfather on your dad's side. You have a love to this day for him. Why? Well, my granddad uh, operated a sawmill, or two of them, actually, down on the uh, southern Oregon coast. And that's why I spent a lot of my uh, childhood uh, in, in the sawmills and out in the woods. I worked uh, summers out in the woods. But my grandfather was such a... Uh, beloved figure in the town. He treated everyone with respect, regardless of their station in life. Uh, and, uh, you know, good old Dave was uh, how he was referred uh, to in the town. And uh, so I learned the value of respect for all the people that work in enterprises and so on. And that carried me through my career. Respect for the people in the enterprise is what can make you successful. All right. Speaking of being successful, where did you ever learn your people skills, your negotiating skills, and really the study of psychology? <laughs> well, I, uh, that's hard to say, as, uh, both in my family life and also uh, the role model of my grandfather, uh, having you know, respect for everyone who's doing their job at whatever level, if they're doing their job well and are devoted to it, 
then uh, if that respect for them will show through and they will respect you in return. Where did you get your love for numbers? <laughs> um, I was good at uh, arithmetic uh, in school. I mean, you know, I was kind of best in my class uh, most of the time. And actually, uh, when I went off to college, I thought I might uh, pursue a major in uh, uh, higher mathematics. But boy, the first uh, semester in college, I took a uh, course in advanced calculus. And you know, the first page of the book was completely filled with all kinds of equations and symbols and so on. And, it, and the, the opening line said, consider the following polynomial, which took the whole rest of the page. I closed the book and decided to go pursue some other career. And all you had to know about numbers was black ones are good and red ones aren't so good. So, <laughs> there we go. All right. You often refer to the fundamental values with which you were raised. Why so? Well, uh, just because it uh, did so much to uh, shape my life. Uh, and, you know, uh, part of it is, uh, you know, the dedication and hard work uh, in order to succeed at uh, what uh, is in front of you. Uh, respect for the people that you're working with that allows you to get along with them and you can get a lot more done if you have a good working relationship with all the people on your side or on the other side of any uh, business uh, situation that you're in. All right, we're talking to Steve Miller. And in 1968, he joined a fledgling company by the name of Ford Motor Company. And he toiled there from 68 to 78 in Mexico, Australia, Venezuela. Steve, talk about the Mexico experience first. Well, the Mexico experience, uh, like the others, was uh, an amazing thing in my uh, career development. And the reason is that <clears throat> it, by going to another country to a much smaller enterprise than, uh, say, Ford US, uh, actually at a lower level in management, you were able to deal daily with uh, people from manufacturing or engineering or sales and marketing. Uh, and you got to know the whole business, even though it was a smaller uh, section of the Ford Motor Company. Whereas if I had stayed all that time in Dearborn, you know, I would have been, you know, in finance the whole time and only talking with finance people. So that experience was great on a professional level. In addition, uh, going down to Mexico City with uh, my wife and my three boys, uh, we were able to have just a wonderful personal life. You know, traveling around the country of Mexico, getting to know the people, getting to speak the language a little bit, uh, and so on. And it, and it, for my whole family, opened their eyes to the whole world and all the different cultures and how to get along with people, even though they're you know, maybe a little different than yourself and how they speak and what they think. We're talking to Steve Miller. When we come back, we're going to ask him about an iconic figure at Ford in those days, Henry the Deuce. And I'm Jack Rasula. And this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Pursula. We're with Steve Miller. And from 1968 to 78, he worked for Ford Motor Company in Mexico, Australia, Venezuela. Never complain, never explain. 
famously Henry the Deuce. A few anecdotes, if you would, about the Deuce. Okay. Well, first off, during my uh, Ford career, uh, I didn't get to you know work with him day by day. He was, of course, the chairman of the board, and I was just a uh, middle uh, manager in uh, finance. And I was overseas, where he is most of the time was in Dearborn. But he did come to visit uh, uh, in each of the places that I worked in uh, Mexico, in Australia, and in Venezuela on uh, brief uh, visits where then I you know, got to meet and uh, talk with him. Uh, I enjoyed working for a company where a guy with uh, his name on the door and with, you know, with uh, decades and decades of uh, family involvement in the company going all, back, all the way back to its founding you know, was important. And uh, you know, the deuce, uh, Henry Ford II, was able to look beyond you know, today's quarterly you know, earnings things and, and, and be more of a visionary and permit uh, the company to grow in ways that perhaps would not be possible in any other company. So I was, you know, proud to be working in a company that uh, he oversaw. We uh, uh, did have him, uh, when he would come to visit, you know, we would almost as a management, you know, stop worrying about cars and trucks and instead worrying about all the little details of the visit. And one little uh, anecdote is that uh, we called world headquarters and got for every restaurant that we might visit. Uh, we found out uh, what was his favorite scotch, what was his favorite the bourbon, this and that and the other thing, so that we could stock each restaurant with exactly what would uh, he might request on that particular meal. Uh, so I walked him up the stairs into the first uh, night uh, visit uh, in one place and said, you know, Mr. Ford, what would you like to drink? And he says, I'd like a ginger ale. And I looked at the bartender and the bartender said, uh, <laughs> the name of uh, ginger ale, you know, and <laughs> so for all the best efforts, we failed. So, all right. Another iconic figure at Ford, Ed Lundy. What made him so special? Well, Ed Lundy, uh, was uh, one of the original, uh, you know, whiz kids uh, like uh, Bob uh, McNamara and so on that came at the end of World War II uh, to help Henry Ford resuscitate the company that had been a little bit uh, run down at the time. And uh, that group of whiz kids were hugely successful. Uh, there was uh, uh, R.J. Miller, uh, Ed Lundy and so on, but Ed was the shining star of the finance staff. And he ran it, uh, you know, with, uh, I would say, loving discipline. Uh, and he had uh, all these rules of thumb for, you know, the language you had to use. You always used uh, the word present rather than current in describing a, you know, forecast of the business. You know, it's uh, said, you know, current is for electricity. You know, the present forecast is X, Y, Z. Uh, and everything about the language. In fact, I walked into his office one time and he and the uh, vice president controller were debating the uses of which and that because he wanted perfect English in every communication that came out of finance staff that went to the senior management or Mr. Ford uh, at, at Ford. All right, 1979, you follow... Leah Iacocca from Ford, Jerry Greenwald, you go to Chrysler. You, you uh, work there from 79 to 92. Tell us about the 
famous, iconic Lee Iacocca. <laughs> well, Iacocca was, um, yes, he was famous, iconic, and so on. He had, uh, you know, been fired by Henry Ford when they didn't quite get along. He ended up, you know, down the street at, uh, at Chrysler, and Chrysler uh, was, you know, about to go beneath the waves. It just uh, it looked like it was at the end of its rope. There was no choice but to go to Congress and get the uh, Chrysler Loan Guarantee Act. Uh, it was for a billion and a half dollars. Seems like chump change these days, but it was uh, what we needed in order to survive. And uh, so Lee was you know, lead, leading in that, and uh, he got me involved in, in a, a lot of that, and I learned a lot from him. When you would sit with him at the lunch table or something, you know, he would have a, uh, you wanted to copy down kind of every one-liner that he came up with as he would go through, because he could express the most complicated subjects in the most simple language that any man on the street could understand. And that was one of his great strengths with just, you know, communication. He also was the one who, uh, you know, decided to work for a dollar a year when we were under such pressure. Uh, so he, uh, you know, helped with, you know, the cash flow and kind of took away the you know, stigma of executive compensation when a company is in trouble. And those were, you know, tremendous leadership things. He also, one last uh, anecdote about uh, Lee, he set up a bonus system for the executives at Chrysler that was based on, you know, your typical things of financial success and market share gains and this and that and the other thing. But at the bottom was the word quality. If we did not meet the quality improvement objectives in any particular year, all of our bonuses were completely wiped out. And his reason was, we don't make cars that are good enough for the American public. And if we don't fix our quality issues, you know, we will go out of business anyway. So we need to focus on that. And it was successful. The improvements in quality of Chrysler vehicles over time was astounding. Speaking of quality, Bob Lutz. Tell us about Bob Lutz. Well, Bob Lutz uh, was, you know, one of my favorite characters in the whole uh, Chrysler story. He had been earlier in his career, you know, with uh, Ford. He'd been with uh, uh, General Motors. He'd been with uh, uh, BMW, uh, and uh, he was available. And uh, so Iacocca was smart enough just to go grab him and put him in charge of uh, our uh, products and and the improvement. In the you know, and not only the uh, quality of our products, but the excellence of our products as a result of Bob's contribution was you know, just uh, tremendous. And he he was colorful. He could speak you know four or five different languages, uh, get along you know with people all over the world. And uh, I learned a lot from Bob and enjoyed uh, being partnered with him at Chrysler. He could fly his own jet. Um, he once said, and I quote him: "When times are good, nearly anyone can lead." When times are bad, you need someone like Steve Miller. <laughs> All right. Every project that is a corporate rescue mission, walk us through the process, if you will. Okay. On a corporate uh, rescue mission, I've been involved in many companies that for a whole variety of uh, you know, financial reasons or uh, you know, production reasons or management change reasons or accounting reasons. Uh, impropriety reasons, whatever, they, they, they've gotten into uh, very big trouble. Typically, these are companies that have been around for many, many decades, and they've become 
a little bit top heavy and uh, bureaucratic. Um, so one of the things I do going into a company is I spend, you know, the I parachute in, I really, you know, haven't studied it to death. You have to have the attitude of a fireman where you don't study the situation for a long time. Instead, just grab a hose and get working at it. But the thing I do when after I uh, come in is I have one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, meals, you know, breakfast or lunch or dinner with each of the, say, top 20 people in the company. And I ask them, you know, so what's wrong with this picture and how can we uh, do better? And I get in that moment in time, a lot of ideas as to where the answers might lie. And secondly, I learn a lot about those people and who are the bureaucrats and who are the entrepreneurs. And what I want are the entrepreneurs, those with the energy, uh, creativity, you know, willingness to you know, break through uh, you know, tradition and maybe holding them back. And, uh, and it's always been successful. And I give a lot of new responsibility to younger people who maybe are you know, haven't had as many years as you might like, but I've never been sorry about uh, those promotions and those granting of responsibility. And, and my lesson from all that is when I go into these companies, I don't need to bring a bunch of outsiders into the company. The talent, the desire, the experience to fix a broken company is already there if you can just give them the right direction and put the, you know put the right people into positions of key responsibility. We're talking to Steve Miller. He's Mr. Fix-It for American industry. And I'm Jack Rasul, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. This is Anything is Possible. I'm your host, Jack Prisola, with Steve Miller. And in, since July of 18, he's been the chairman of the board of Purdue Pharma. Steve, I quote you now. In a number of the situations I've been in, we've had to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And that's terrorizing to the people who work in the firm. The thing is won or lost on the day you file. Really? When you do file for Chapter 11, you, you have to have some sense of how you're going to get out of the mess. And it's actually an advantage for someone like me coming in. I don't have to spend a lot of time apologizing for how we got into the ditch. I can spend all my time focusing on how we're going to get out of the ditch. But uh, when you go into bankruptcy, you make a lot of decisions right at that moment uh, as you file that may determine whether you can successfully use bankruptcy as the uh, lifesaver to bring the company back. Every company I've gone in, by the way, I ask two questions before I say, yes, I'll jump in. One is, is this company worth saving? In other words, does our economy, our society, our you know, employment base in the country you know, need this company or is it okay if they just disappear and somebody else take its place? And every situation I've got into, there's a lot of value to be added to our whole economy if this company can get back on its feet. And the second question is, can I add value? And that is, you know, is there something about my experience that can be helpful in uh, getting this company back on its feet? Ross Perot 
was like an Iacocchi. He had a lot of great little sayings, you know? Um, everything is wonderful, 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 talking about the government. But he, he once said, it's a funny thing about people. Oftentimes when they get successful, they quit doing the very things that made them successful. Why is that? Well, I, I, I don't know. I've, the companies I have seen have gotten, uh, you know, they, they started going downhill and then they, you know, did all the wrong things. And they, you know, sometimes you fire the, all the people who do the work and, you know, get, get hit more top heavy uh, in your management and so on. I mean, there's, there's, for every company I've been involved in, there's a different set of reasons, uh, you know, for why they lost uh, track of where they were going. But um, uh, it's mostly, you know, companies get very bureaucratic when they are big and successful and they keep adding, you know, more uh, positions to study this and that instead of being lean and mean. And, the, you know, one of the things we did at Chrysler uh, and at other companies that have been is, you know, we got lean and mean again in order to survive. All right, let's talk about Delphi. You went there in July of 2005 through October 2009. You were CEO and executive chairman. You took that through bankruptcy. That was like a walk in the park, I understand. <laughs> well, uh, it, it not only was, uh, you know, four years going through the process, and we spent uh, half a billion dollars on professionals. That's the financial analysts and the uh, lawyers and so on uh, to advise us and, and help us get through it. But while we were in there, the whole world you know, was coming tumbling down. Uh, the market kept getting soft. Then we had the financial crisis of uh, 2008 that, where everybody lost confidence and uh, you know, slowed, uh, uh, slowed down, car sales dried up. Uh, and of course, you know, two of Detroit's big three, uh, General Motors and Chrysler also went bankrupt themselves while uh, we were struggling to get out of bankruptcy. So it was, just a very difficult period of time for the whole industry, let alone Delphi. I quote you again, half the world thinks I'm a fireman and the other half thinks I'm an arsonist. Okay, <laughs> talk about standing up to politicians, the media, and the unions. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the, the biggest thing about the Delphi uh, bankruptcy was uh, labor costs, which had grown to $75 an hour for each hour actually worked. And why was that? Well, you have to have, account for all the pensions and health care for retired workers. And because we were shrinking our business, the number of retirees kept growing. Uh, like uh, GM, Delphi had the 30 and out principle where you could start work at 18, uh, retire at age 48, and still get you know, a full pension and healthcare benefit going forward. And by the time uh, I came on the scene there, we had uh, you know, as many retired uh, people as active workers and trying to account for that and, and accrue for all the expenses of the workers we had uh, was insurmountable. And we were competing with, uh, you know, other unionized suppliers who had UAW labor as well as we did, but they were paying about $20 an hour instead of $75 an hour. So it was just, it was, you could not go out and compete for any new business uh, while you had that. And so we had to face up to it. That uh, The union, of course, was very unhappy. They were not only 
protecting the workforce at Delphi, but they were afraid that if Delphi got concessions and was able to reduce its labor cost, that the lesson would then be applied to, you know, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler as well. So they were, you know, uh, <clears throat> fighting us not only for the <clears throat> uh, what was going on at Delphi, but also for what it might mean to the rest of the auto industry. We're talking to Steve Miller, his autobiography is entitled "The Turnaround Kid: What I Learned Rescuing America's Most Troubled Companies." All right. Let's talk about a chapter in your life that was literally a love fest. <laughs> Saving the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, please. Okay, the uh, Detroit Symphony Orchestra, you know, was I did that as a you know volunteer, you know, on nights and Sundays, if you will, uh, while I was uh, vice chairman at Chrysler, and yet I regard the Detroit Symphony Orchestra as one of the uh, you know finest examples of uh, you know turnaround uh, management and the uh, I had you know, a lot of support from many of the uh, you know uh, people of uh, Detroit but we, we had issues one the when I took it over the uh, conductor had quit to uh, go to another orchestra uh, the uh, musicians union was on strike uh, the uh, mayor of Detroit was evicting us from Ford Auditorium because he had a different uh, use in mind for Ford Auditorium. Uh, and uh, many of the people in the legislature were unhappy that we did not have a more diversified uh, base of musicians. Uh, I went to Lansing to meet with the legislators and said, you know, I understand the historic issue here, but uh, you just have to give me some time and we will work it out uh, and you'll be proud of this. And we did that. We did hire a great new uh, conductor in Naomi Yarvi, who was just a marketing uh, genius, if you will, and kind of brought a lot of spirit back. We uh, I merged the orchestra with the group that was working to save Orchestra Hall. And uh, so we rebuilt Orchestra Hall and then brought the orchestra back there. And it's now, you know, part of this whole wonderful uh, complex. Uh, the, um, you know, Max uh, Fisher uh, Performing Arts Center. Uh, and so, you know, we got a, a lot done, but it you know, took the whole community working together. And, you know, it was, as I look back on it, I was a, it was a great learning experience for me. And, and when I, where the result is one I'm extremely proud of. We're talking to Steve Miller, the turnaround kid. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Jack Rasula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit, brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything. Of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, 
Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. Anything is possible. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Steve Miller, the Mr. <coughs> Fix-It for American Industry. Steve, how do you keep your cool when all around you are screaming <laughs> and threatening murder, etc.? Talk to us about keeping your cool. <clears throat> well, there's, uh, I would say, two answers to that. One, you just have to have the self-assurance that I didn't cause this mess. Uh, I'm but I'm here gonna do everything I can to try and fix it. I've got all these different constituents with different points of view. And if I can get them all onto the same page, we'll be in a better place. And I'm not, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, the uh, issues I had with the uh, United Auto Workers, but I have to look at them. They, most of the United Auto Workers that worked for Delphi had started their careers at General Motors <coughs> and, uh, you know, 20 years prior, on the promise that they would get the General Motors uh, pay and benefits. And when I said, I can't afford that, I don't have the money, I've gone broke, you know, they were very upset. But I do, you know, understand them as, you know, they, they are people with families and they have counted on uh, Delphi being able to honor its commitments and the fact that we couldn't do it. I didn't blame them for being upset with me, just but said, we are where we are, we got to work this out. <coughs> All right, since July of 2018, you've been the chairman of the board of Purdue Pharma, the infamous Purdue Pharma, the maker of the opiate drug, Oxycontin. Um, talk about this one. Well, this, uh, I mean, two things. Well, one, this is as backdrop to what I am doing as chairman, uh, trying to get this company fixed and uh, back on its feet and out of bankruptcy. Uh, it, it is against the background of just an incredible human tragedy from drug overdose. I mean, some of it uh, was due to uh, misuse of prescription pharmaceuticals, but a lot of it, particularly these days, is uh, almost all due to illegal fentanyl or uh, imported heroin and so on. It's a terrible problem, and we're trying to do what we can from our point of view to help America to deal with it. We're taking the company, and we have, you know, we no longer call on doctors. We don't try and push pills. We don't do any advertising. We do make the product because it's, it's a miracle drug for appropriate patients, which would be, you know, say, like terminal cancer patients uh, or people who've been in an auto accident and they just need to get through the next few days. Those are good. If they got good doctor care, they're you know they're not going to uh, end up in a bad way. They're going to have a great improvement in their life. And those are the ones we're focused on. We have put in systems to try and track every pharmacy that uh, buys our product uh, through distributors. And if we see any big uptick in the order rate, we want to find out why is that? Is this because it's becoming a pill mill? Or is there some legitimate reason like, you know, changing where their warehouse is or something that would cause them to have a aberration in the rate of uh, uh, prescription orders? So we're doing our can. And then our plan in bankruptcy, which I thought would be finished by now, but isn't quite, is to 
take all of the assets of this company, plus a contribution from the prior owners, the Sackler family, and make it into a uh, public benefit uh, corporation, an opioid abatement trust. And all of the funds would go to victims of, uh, of a, uh, drug abuse, uh, regardless of whether it was our drug or not, and to the states and communities that have suffered so much from the problem of drug addiction. So we're well on our way to you know, getting this thing fixed as best we can and doing our part to you know, create and preserve the value that is there, even though it is associated with uh, significant problems over you know, five or 10 years ago. The numbers are astounding. 600,000 people have filed lawsuits, uh, over a billion so far in lawyers alone, claims totaling $140 trillion. <laughs> how big is a trillion, Steve? Well, it's uh, you know, beyond my can as to how big is a trillion, but $140 trillion exceeds the combined GNP of every country on planet Earth. And it just, so we don't, we don't happen to have it. We're going to do the best we can, but it just, the seriousness of the problem is underscored by the fact that this is a, in every way possible, a record breaker of a, uh, you know, difficult bankruptcy case. All right, let's talk, if you would, about communicating with employees. And let's use two examples. One is the Canadian Justin Trudeau with the truckers. <laughs> and the other one is the, Ukrainian president, the ex-comedian, uh, com talk about the two ways and what's the right way. <laughs> well, I'm, I am, you know, fearful for, but very admirous of the president of the Ukraine. I mean, he is, uh, you know, standing his ground, leading his people, and, you know, kind of brings back memories of, you know, Winston Churchill, uh, back at the beginning of World War II, when he had to uh, give, you know, spirit to his country to withstand the uh, threatened attacks coming from uh, Adolf Hitler. <clears throat> so that's that's a good way. The, uh, you know, Justin uh, Trudeau. I only know what I you know read about it, uh, but he's got you know a whole you know segment of his population, you know, the truckers who are very unhappy about uh, the mandated uh, vaccinations which goes to the heart of, you know, personal freedoms. And, you know, and he has been treating them, uh, I would say, you know, very badly. Instead of leading, he has been trying to just uh, squash them. And I, I think that's a political mistake. Uh, I quote you again. I get these jobs because I'm fearless and I'm clueless. <laughs> uh, all right. You talk about warning signs. Repeatedly missed earnings, lack of candor firing of bearers of bad news, lack of healthy internal debate. Please. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that goes to, uh, you know, leadership characteristics in companies that do get into trouble. <laughs> Some of the leaders who have been failures, you know, have just, they are so strong and so self-assured in what they think is right, that they are unable to listen. And if anyone gets close to threatening them or looks like a logical successor down the road. Uh, they want to kill them off in order to make sure that the board has no choice but to keep them on for a while. And that's, that's just not a good thing for a business. Uh, and I would say, 
<clears throat> businesses over time need changes of leadership. Uh, going back to the example of Detroit Symphony we were talking about, when we would have a change of conductor, uh, that would be good because the uh, at the time I took it over, Gunter Herbig had done a fabulous job of getting the orchestra to be very disciplined in the way they played. But when Naomi Yarby came in, he instead led them with heart and put a you know a lot of enthusiasm into what they were doing. So they had the discipline taught them by one leader and had the uh, uh, heart, if you will, uh, the musicality brought to them by uh, the, the next conductor. And you know the combination works well. And I think in every corporation, you can't have one person, you know, lead the business, you know, for decades, because you pretty soon the organization has gotten all the benefit of that leader's strengths, but is now lacking some other attributes that a new leader could bring. Steve Miller, you are a shining example of so many of these traits you talk about. Quality, honesty, having a heart, being good to people. Um, your grandfather's looking down and saying, that's my little Stevie. Keep him proud every day, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Pasula. Thanks for listening and make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spoken. Believe in yourself.